Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble and fully self-enlightened one. <clears throat> so uh, the last time I spoke, it was about the um, uh, the bit where the Buddha becomes enlightened and is attacked by Mara, and then eventually uh, overcomes that attack and becomes uh, fully liberated. So what I mean to do is just go back a little bit and really discuss uh, this fellow Mara. So there were nine storms, the wind, the rain, the rocks, the missiles, the embers, the ashes, the sand, the mud, and the darkness. And when they approached the Buddha or the Bodhisattva, he was either untouched or they turned into garlands, flowers, sandalwood powder, balms, and light. So these, of course, refer to uh, the hindrances or what's called the hindrances. And uh, the Buddha's own image for these hindrances are like a pool of water. So the mind is like a pool of water. And if it's discolored with um, all various different colors, kaleidoscopic, then you can't see into it. You can't see into it because <clears throat> you're enchanted by these colors. If the water's boiling, then that's uh, an image of hatred and anger. If it's covered over with mosses, that's the effect of dullness and lethargy. And if the wind blows across the pool and makes the waves, so that's an image of restlessness. And if it's turbid and muddy, that's the insidious pervasiveness of doubt. That's the Buddha being a little poetic. But um, for us, the defilements when they arise are to be acknowledged as our trainers they must be embraced as friends they've come to help us to develop our perfections and uh, we can say that uh, the greater the defilement the greater the potential for perfection (laughs) the more horrible you are the more wonderful you'll become So there's hope even for people like Hitler and Stalin. Heavens, they might become Buddhas. One of the the things when we hit these uh, hindrances is that we don't know our virtues until they're tested. And I'm reminded of a book I read many years ago by a man called Brian Keenan, who was an Irish fellow. And he um, was one of the many who got uh, kidnapped in Lebanon during that time. And uh, his book, uh, An Evil Cradling, is well worth reading because um, he really went through some horrible stuff. And I heard uh, an interview with him, and the usual question was, or the question you know, was, you know, you must be very strong to undergo these things. You must have had a tremendous um, power inside you. And he insisted that it wasn't so, and that other people found similar strength. I mean, there were one or two who broke down, who broke. But uh, generally speaking... 
uh, we have this inner virtue which we don't know until we're tested. Hmm? So when these uh, defilements come up, uh, we have to see them as uh, testers, trainers, teachers, friends. What I want to do, rather than go through them in, in, in the usual order, <clears throat> is just take the ones that we normally suffer from. And I, I want to do it for a, for a little while, and then I want to answer these questions. Uh, the question sheet that I put up um, uh, didn't get filled very quickly. So most of the questions come from people who've left. <laughs> so I'm hoping that I can sort of telepathically send it to them as I speak. Uh, so the first big one, isn't it, that we, we hit usually when we come to retreat is the old dullness and lethargy, the old sloth and torpor, you know. And uh, we have to understand why it is that we have so much of it. So the first reason is, of course, that we, um, we like sleeping. We indulge in it Sunday morning, roll over, cup of tea, newspaper, roll back over. The beach, say no more. So all these times that we have longed, you know, to sleep, to rest, for no reason at all apart from that, it's a sweet thing to do. Builds up that conditioning of seeking happiness in oblivion. That's what we're doing. And the fact of the matter is that in oblivion, there is no suffering. Correct? There's no suffering. In oblivion, there's no suffering. It's only when you wake up <laughs> that you realize that it hasn't worked. But the other reason that we uh, tend to fall asleep is, of course, that we're turning away from something. We're pushing something away. So we feel depressed, we feel down, we feel a bit anxious. Hey, just lay out on the couch and off you go. And here are the two great tanhas, the two great cravings. The craving of bhava, the craving of becoming. So we want to become oblivious to the world. And vibhava tanha, the craving to annihilate, annihilate ourselves, which takes us towards suicide. So when we understand that these are at the root of our problem, then... Uh, at least we have some way, we have some basis in which to really argue with ourselves, to really confront these feelings when they come up, no matter how heavy they are. Now, um, there's the story of Moggallana. So Moggallana had just met the Buddha, and uh, not surprisingly, the big thing that he suffered from was sloth and torpor. So he went to the Buddha, and the Buddha gave him nine things to do. He said, first of all, when the first sign comes, he said, take no notice. Just lift the spine, put more energy into the practice. If you're still coming, then consider the Dharma. Recognize the danger of the hindrance. Build up some wholesome fear, you might say, a dread of consequences. And that should lift a bit of energy. If that doesn't work, recite the Dharma. Now, if you don't know any Dharma... <laughs> then you can recite anything just to keep you awake. This is, this is an effort just to keep awake, remember. Hmm? 
And then he said, if that doesn't work, rub your ears. So he must have known about acupuncture points. And if that doesn't work, he said, rub your legs. And if that doesn't work, get up and wash your face in cold water. And if that fails, he said, put some, open your eyes. You must have opened your eyes before, but <laughs> somewhere along the line you can open your eyes. And then if that doesn't work, you can create a light source in your mind. So only, only people who have practiced jhana, I should think, can do that. And then finally, walk up and down. Now, <clears throat> the thing here is that what he's saying is don't give up easy. Huh? He's given nine different ways in which to overcome, uh, try to work against that desire to fall asleep. Now, in terms of our practice, you know, we can simplify that. So, yes, when, the, when those first feelings come, you know, you have to recognize them fairly quickly and just lift up the body. Sometimes they go. It's just a bit of um, not enough energy around, and it's just moving us towards sleep. Then if that doesn't work, just open your eyes, let a bit of light in. Hmm? The other one that, that I've tried is hands on your head. Not on top of your head, it hurts your neck, but something like that. You ever tried that? Sort of works. Of course, if it, if it fails, you tend to move forward pretty quickly. But <laughs> it can be dangerous. But generally speaking, you can still catch yourself. Then if that doesn't work, you stand up. And if, and if, you, if you feel you're going to fall over, then you have to walk. Now, when you walk, don't do the slow walking meditation. Hmm? What you want to do is just gently walk up and down. Because what we're trying to do is refuse to fall into that temptation. Whatever the, the rule is, whatever a hindrance is telling us to do, we must do exactly the opposite. So if, the, if these hindrances are saying, look, fall asleep, have a little kip, a power nap, that's what you need, you see? And you say, no way, I know you, Mara. That's the mud that he threw at the Buddha. And you stand up against it, so you won't do it. You absolutely resist, no matter what. And you don't fight it. If you find yourself fighting it, of course, then you're pushing a lot of uh, turbulence back into the system. Then it becomes a struggle, and, and you, just get a, well, you just get a headache. So it's a case of just being with it, of allowing it to be there. When you walk, when you walk up and down with it, for instance, you know, just imagine you're just taking a big fat dog for a walk. Just dragging it with you, that's all. Come on, come on, see? Now, uh, you can go to extreme levels to uh, overcome sloth and torpor. There was a story, and I can't remember where I picked it up from, where a monk was rather desperate about it all, and he sat against a pole and uh, sort of tied his head to it. <laughs> Unfortunately, he fell asleep. And when they came in, they thought he'd hanged himself. His head had fallen forward. The other thing you can try is to sit um, near a wall, and uh, when you go forward, you definitely wake up with, <laughs> with a nice little crack on the head. Unfortunately, as I found anyway, it doesn't seem to help very much if you've got very strong torpor. You do wake up, as it were, but then eventually, if it's really bad, your body does tend to collapse and you really nut the wall. And after a week of this, I, I got this feeling there's a bit of brain damage going on, so <laughs> I sort of gave up on it. But when I got to my uh, kuti, my hut, um, I found that um, 
I used to sit under a net, a mosquito net. <clears throat> I used to find that just that, just that little touch on the head from the mosquito net was enough to just keep me up. See? These are only suggestions, you understand? Um, I was at a retreat uh, years ago where a big, tall man was standing next to me. And we were meditating. This almighty crash. And he actually fallen over. He keeled over. See, so there's a sort of... <laughs> you, have to, you have to use a bit of common sense somewhere. When we went over to help him, he refused to be helped. And there was another occasion when uh, this... Uh, he was, you know, this was when I was a lay person. There was another occasion when I was... Uh, a monk. I was in uh, Penang, and they've got a beautiful center there. And this uh, young, young monk, he's a German fellow, very tall, big fellow, and um, he would get up with us at 2 o'clock, would you believe, to do the meditation. And he'd do walking meditation at the back of the hall. And there was this, uh, again, this uh, enormous crash. And he'd walked into a painting. He was lucky it wasn't a, a window. Very embarrassed. None of us got up, by the way. We all just noted hearing, hearing. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, uh, you have to use a bit of common sense so, with these things. Um, but what do you do? What do you actually do when these things come, you say? I mean, what's the practice there? So it's to investigate it, isn't it? So first of all, there's usually that that um, reaction to it, the aversion, the not wanting it, the want to shake yourself out of it, go for a, a brisk walk. See, now, if you do that, you're suppressing it. If you think you can kick this out of the way by, you know, walking up and down fast, then there's, there's a possibility that actually all you're doing is pushing it away. So that pushing it away re-enters the system, and then you get more sloth, more torpor. So... <clears throat> When we're sitting there and this, and this stuff comes, there may be that desire to go there, so that's the pleasure, and there may be that resistance to it, not wanting to deal with it. But frankly, of all the uh, painful mental states that we have, you know, depression, anxiety and all that, uh, this isn't so bad, is it? I mean, I'm all right with it. So, you know, it's sort of a, sort of gentle, fuzzy feelings in the head. Sometimes it gets a bit like porridge, but you just... And what the idea is that you sort of wander about, see? If you keep your attention moving, it'll keep you awake. So you just wander about, feeling this, feeling that, around the middle of your head, see? And then maybe you can come out of your head and see if there's any dullness, any lethargy anywhere else. See? If, there's, if, there's a, a bright, if the mind is bright, but the body feels very lethargic, right? you move around, just feeling here, feeling there. Just wonder if your big toe feels lethargic. Have you ever investigated that? See? And it's just keeping that consciousness moving, just keeping the attention moving, just gives it that little bit of energy not to be drawn into it. And what we're investigating, as always, is the quality of those sensations, those feelings. Now, we can see them from the three characteristics point of view, you know, the fact that they're constantly a process of change, that when you're looking at it, the observer can't be the observed. There must be some sort of distance, so it's not me, not mine. And again, that reaction of wanting, not wanting, which is the dukkha, the suffering. But you can also look at it uh, sort of more in terms of its, um, the, uh, the, four, the four great elements. Try and feel it's, um, sometimes it's 
we haven't got words for these things. It's like featheriness or it's lightness or it's dustiness. And just get into it, you know. If, if words don't come, if you're using the noting technique and words don't come, don't bother with it. Just, just, get, <laughs> just feel what's actually happening there. Actually get into it. And that's what we're doing. That's all we're doing. And in so doing, remember, we're always allowing this turbulence, because it's a turbulence, it's an energy, yeah? to, expend it, to expend itself, to just blow itself out. See? Now, every time we fall into it, remember, even when we don't want to, even if we don't want to, even if we do it totally unwittingly, there's always that little moment of impulsion. So remember that. Yeah? Whenever we fall into some, some dream, fantasy or whatever, there's always that little moment of impulsion, and that's the chaitana, that's the will. And it's recreating and continues to create and continues to reinforce that conditioning. Now, um, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a powerful thing. It's not a powerful thing, but it's there. It's there constantly pushing that wheel round. So uh, when we know that, then, of course, that we, you know, we get that feeling for putting a little bit of special effort into, the, uh, into that practice. These things can last a long time, you know. Yeah, they can last for days. So you just have to bear with it. You know? I mean, it's not as though it's like that all the time, but it can be sort of hanging around. And it feels as though you, you can't investigate anything because it feels so dull. But that's because you're not making the dullness something to investigate. Yeah? And if boredom comes, you note that, because that's coming out of a desire for pleasure, a desire for some sort of happiness or distraction. Hmm? And you just keep going back to it, keep going back to it. And remind ourselves that when these things come up in that way, as physical feelings, hmm, they're actually exhausting themselves. That's how the conditioning exhausts itself. Hmm? Now, uh, often when, when we do this with you know, these, uh, these feelings, uh, you know, it might be that as they begin to disappear, whatever has been suppressed begins to arise. It might be fear, it might be anything down there. So uh, the resolution then is, you know, to refuse to be annihilated. And uh, with all these hindrances, remember, that's the purification of the heart. So that's a, an energy. And when it's released, it's, it's transformed. It doesn't, doesn't stop, it doesn't... doesn't the, the energy isn't, isn't dissipated or lost. Huh? Remember that in right attitude of the Eightfold Path, hatred turns to love, cruelty to compassion. So there's a transformation going on. And this energy now, purified of that tightness, uh, is there to be used. And it'll, it'll come back into the awareness. It'll come back into all, this, into all the um, factors of enlightenment. Hmm? So it's really worth struggling with it. Now... Um, you know, it's up to you uh, as to how much you want to find out where the, should we say, where the point of tiredness is and the point of lethargy, uh, this dullness and, and lethargy starts. So if after, say, on a retreat, if after three days you've sort of settled in and you, you, you feel settled and, and you're sleeping something like seven hours, you see, well, push it back a bit, go back to five and a half. Remember, we sleep in these one and three-quarter hour patterns. And then when you do that, of course, you have to go through three days of misery to get, to, get, to get that energy up. 
But in so doing, you see, something may be being released because we don't know how much of our so-called sleep is actually needed. Hmm? And then when that's settled and you're you're actually flying along on five and a half hours and you feel generally okay with it, not that these feelings won't come up, Uh, push it back a bit more so you can get back to four hours, three and a half, you see, and give it another three days. If uh, you can do that, lift it up three days, then, you know, really it's very difficult to go back beyond that. Even the Buddha needed two hours. And on a hot day, on on the hot season, he had to have a kip in the afternoon too. So it's not as though we want to do without sleep, but we just want to find out how much sleep do we actually need. Now, if you, if you knock it back to three and a half hours, four hours, and after four to five days you're still falling out all over the place and crashing through doors and things like that, then you come back forward again and try five and a half hours. And then you know, you know where, the, where the line is as far as, as far as this retreat is concerned. Yeah? That's not an all-time rule. That's just this moment, this retreat, this is what I can handle. And in so doing, you're actually gently pushing the system, you see. You're gently, shall we say, squeezing the pimple. Yeah? You've got to give it a little squeeze and it'll pop, see? So you've got <laughs> to work with it a little bit. So uh, <clears throat> that sort of gives us some idea about sloth and torpor. Or this le- uh, I do prefer the words dullness and lethargy, but I'm used to saying sloth and torpor. If while you're listening uh, you come up with some question or you come up with a technique which has never been known before but which works for you, uh, do leave me a little note, please, because I'm collecting techniques. It's my job. So now, opposite to that is all these feelings of restlessness. So again, when we look at the root cause, the root cause of restlessness... So it's all part of our indulgence, isn't it? Rushing here, rushing there, getting this done, getting that done, uh, wanting this, wanting that. I mean, the whole society is in a, in a sort of constant rush. Huh? So within that, within that flow of getting things done in order to achieve something, so there's that pleasure that comes with, with uh, you know, doing something fast and achieving something. Uh, one very good exercise you might try is um, just uh, because, you know, this, this is all also a lot to do with our relationship to time and time passing. And everybody has slightly different relationships to time, psychological time. And uh, one little trick you can do, which uh, did definitely helped me, was to get a, a clock with, with fingers hmm? and just sit there watching it. Two hours, just watching the clock go round. And just, just listen to what comes up. And, you know, all this stuff about wasting time and what are you doing here? You should be out there doing something. And you just sit there just watching it going around. Minute after minute. And the passage of time, you know, the fact that we can't control it. Oh, all sorts of stuff comes up. The office can buy you a clock. Now, the other reason, of course, that we rush is that we are pushing things away. Hmm? Don't want to, we don't want to look at certain things, so we're running in the opposite direction. Often, for instance, when we feel depressed, you know, we'll force ourselves, you know, the old uh, kick in the you-know-what, and get going. And unfortunately, we do that only by way of not looking at something which is unpleasant, 
we're running away from it. So it's a form of aversion. And uh, when we do that, we are again suppressing. So when we slow down, and that's one of the great things about uh, slowing down, so that you can feel that impulse to rush, 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 move, 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 you see. And if you just stop and just stay with that, you see, then often when that disappears, when that begins to dissipate, an underlying feeling, an underlying mental state, which has been actually suppressing, begins to arise. Hmm? And interestingly enough, this uh, particular hindrance, restlessness, is the, is, one of the la- is the last hindrance to go with conceit. doesn't go out. Huh? Now, if we think of restlessness as simply um, just a form of energy being restless, then I don't think that's quite right. Restlessness is, is anything we feel, you see, which is actually shifting the mind. So it could be any of the hindrances which is making, us, which is making the mind shake. So if we look at the process of our uh, practice as a refinement of the heart, a refinement of the mind, then all these hindrances just get more and more refined until they peter out, until they go out. They go out when the self disappears. So that, this restlessness is going to be with us right to the bitter end. So we've got to get used to it. <laughs> so we've got to stop fighting it. We've got to know how to be with it. Now, when you're sitting there, you see, and the, and, uh, and the body feels tremendously restless, so, again, you have to make a resolution. You do exactly the opposite. Even though there are these little... Uh, little maras coming in saying, move, get up, get out, do something, shift, go take a walk, you'll feel better. See, all that sort of stuff. See, you don't move. Stay absolutely rock still, refuse to move. Hmm? And as it were, relax around it. Relax the frame of the body around these feelings hmm? as best you can. And that sort of puts a damper on it, you might say. Yeah, just a fit, just, it just stops the energy uh, ex- you know, beginning to shake everything. And if, again, you can... Just keep, keep the mind moving, keep the mind moving around until you, you feel that you can hold it, as it were. Then it'll, it'll keep that attention right on those feelings. And if, again, you investigate the body, parts of it don't feel restless at all. See, the end of your nose, for instance. Very, very rare for the end of your nose to feel restless. And then just to keep going round, and again to, go to, to see it from one of the three characteristics, the quality of transience and all that, and again to go into it and see what are the building blocks. Now remember that every time we go towards that point of contact where we're actually just experiencing the elements, the four great elements, heat, fire, water, and earth, you know, pressure and all that, uh, remember at that point the, uh, the intellect has to stop, you see, because you've got to be right with it there. So we're seeing things very clearly. And at that point, because we don't, we've gone beyond the idea of restlessness, same with all the others, the idea of fear, the idea of sloth and torpor, uh, then uh, that energy, does, uh, the suppression goes. The suppression only goes when you recognize, when you recognize something as pleasant and unpleasant. Huh? Sorry, the, suppre- the, the suppressive forces, tanha, desire, wanting, not wanting, only comes into force after we've defined something as pleasant and unpleasant. If we go beyond that into the actual feelings and lose that definition, then there's, there's no suppression. 
That means that whatever that turbulence is, that restlessness, it's completely free to exhaust itself. And remember that when, when I'm using words like exhaust and expend and all that, the energy is not lost. It refines itself and is there and is thereby to be used. Well, normally it comes back into the factors of enlightenment. The calm, yeah, the passivity, the calmness, the equanimity, the concentration, the effort, all that begins to get ironed out and reinforced, reinforced. So uh, when we are um, working with restlessness in the body, so the big resolution is not to move. Now, if you do walking meditation, again, if the restlessness is severe, uh, there's no point in doing the slow walking meditation because it, it's like you're, you're trying to force a concentration on the step when the rest of the body is, is shaking like mad. So just walk up and down. It's like taking a frisky dog out for a walk. Just walk up and down and just stay with those feelings and keep the attention moving and, and feeling it and just being with it. Take it for a walk. Hmm? But do it gently, you see. Don't, don't give it, uh, don't, don't start walking up and down like a mad person, you know, because that's just empowering it. So it's a case of just, you know, moving the body gently up and down and just letting these feelings express themselves. Yeah? Again, remember that they've got a grudge against us. They need, they need to get the grudge off their chest. Mara. Okay? You've got to embrace them. Friends. I don't want to sound too new agey now. Huggy wuggy and all that. If the restlessness is in the mind, obsessive thinking, yeah? So what's happening there? What's happening, you see? The old habit whereby an emotional state is seeking some sort of metaphor to work with. So the restlessness will grab anything it can be restless with. It doesn't matter what it is. Huh? And if you find that the mind's doing that, then that's an avenue which has been conditioned to slip out into these higher faculties of thought and imagination. So if you try and kill that, if you try and destroy it, then, of course, again, you're feeding aggression back into the, into the system. So you have to be, we just have to be patient, don't we? Very, very patient with it. You know, you just note it, acknowledge it. So there's always, I'm always, um, I'm always for really acknowledging it. Sometimes we note something and it's more like a, a flip away, you know, restlessness, you know, a little flick. And it's an aversion, you see, and we're not catching it. But if you actually note something, even if you don't use a word, just note it, restless, restless mind, obsessive thinking. And then obsessive, the second one is like an acknowledgement like driving it home to ourselves that this is the restless mind. See? And that stops that reaction of pushing it away or something. And then just noting what it is and just come back, come back into the body and again just feel, if you can, the restlessness which is empowering these thoughts. At first you might not, uh, you might not be able to feel it because the energy of that restlessness has that way out of, ex of, of exhausting its energy. But if you keep doing it, then slowly I think you'll find that you get in touch with that restlessness. And that means that you're stopping that avenue of indulgence. Huh? And the more these feelings come out through the body, the more they're exhausting themselves. Okay? So that, that is a, that you can take that as a, a, an absolute rule until you prove me wrong. 
that whenever these emotions slip into the higher faculties, whether we, whether we have meant them to, to do so or not, they are indulging themselves and they're growing. Yeah? I mean, one obvious example of that is, you know, is during the day at work or at home, somebody says something which is, um, oh, I don't know, a little upsetting, and you, you know, you just, you just put it aside, you don't worry about it. And then when it comes to sort of morning break, it slips up in the mind, and while you're drinking your tea, you're, how could they say a thing like that to me? See? And then by lunchtime, you're eating, and you're, oh, I'm bloody well telling them. <laughs> and then by evening, you're ripping them apart, throwing them out of windows, and you have to take Prozac. And all that's been done, not because you meant it to, because every time that there's a slippage into the fantasy world, it's developing the emotion. That's what the emotion wants to do. That's how it finds relief, isn't it? If you're angry and you bang a door, there's a relief there. But unfortunately, we've reinforced the habit of being angry with doors. So with that uh, obsessive thinking... Uh, it's just, je- just real, just constant persistence, just, just working with it. You know? And every time the anger comes up, the fed-upness comes up, all that, that's also to be noted. And just, as you know, after a time, it, it fades out. Hmm? I like these, these two hindrances. They often move from one to the other, don't they? You can be restless one minute, and then you just fall asleep the next. And then you fall asleep, and suddenly you can't stop moving. So there we see that actually all we're working with are forms of energy. Yeah? The, the image I have is of, is of a, a sort of an internal weather system. So the storms come, the whirlwinds, all that. And it's all the same thing. It just takes on a different hue, a different form. So those are some ideas about restlessness. And um, again, if you've got any little tricks up your sleeve and things like that, or you think I've missed something out, just leave me a note. The next thing that comes up, isn't it, apart from those two, is just pain, you know, physical and mental pain. Um, When it comes to physical pain, well, that's just the nature of the body, isn't it? We can't stop that. Even the Buddha had pain. So what we're concerned with is taking the suffering out of pain. And we find that the suffering is simply our relationship to it. So when pain comes, at least uh, one good thing about it is that it, it does concentrate us. And I'm sure there's often in our meditative lives when we are feeling very restless and all that, that we are crying out for pain. Sit on a pin or something. And, uh, of course, you have to be careful that... Uh, you don't get, um, when it comes to physical pain, that you're clear that it's coming from the body and that the body's actually saying something. So obviously, uh, when we begin a retreat, you can start getting these sore, sore knees, you know, screaming knees. So therefore, you have to give them a bit of a stretch, give them a bit of a rest, you know, have a bit of kindness towards your knees, things like that. But even so, it's an interesting thing for us because we are investigating that relationship we have with pain, which is aversion and fear. And uh, 
the idea is not, of course, to overcome pain. We're not supposed to get macho with it, try to kill it, destroy it. But as soon as we lose that sense of the ability to investigate and to see our relationship to it, it becomes too much, you see. Then you change posture. Now, don't forget, now, when we change posture, there's a whole thing to be learned there. So here we are moving from a a situation where the body's in pain and the mind is in pain, the emotions are in pain, aversion and all that. As we move slowly, see, the more slowly you go, the more you can see the connection between the body and mind. eh? As you move slowly, you can see the sensations of pain fading out to neutral and you can see the heart moving from being very agitated to being in calm, to being calm, comfortable. So it's just watching that, watching that at the mind-body you know, like the Buddha said, milk in water. They're constantly reacting off each other. So we're learning a few things there by just working with, with uh, physical pain. And don't forget that the usual rule about physical pain is that if it carries on after a sitting or after walking, then uh, go to see a doctor, because <laughs> you never know. Generally speaking, as you know, these things disappear when you get up. But the other sort of pain, which is, uh, I suppose, more interesting in a way, is the pain that comes from something suppressed in the body, some emotion that's, uh, for want of a better word, blocked or held in a certain part of the body. And again, when those feelings come up, we're employing the same quality of seeing our relationship to it always, and as that dies out, to go into the pain to see what, what pain is made up of, tightness, burning, whatever it is, just to get down to that level, which makes it very clear that the idea of pain is a concept. It's something the mind works with. Mind conceives it. And, of course, there's a, there's a good reason for it, yeah? I mean, we want to know when the body's in pain. Sometimes I, I think that we can become, um, especially, well, with physical pain, I'm thinking now, you can become a little... Uh, how do you, a little, a little insensitive to what the body's saying to us because we've become so equanimous with it. You have to be slightly careful about that. Um, I remember in my... Because you, you can slightly overdo it. I, I had this um, occasion once when... Uh, actually, as soon as I started meditating, I started getting this sort of discomfort in my neck, back of my neck here. And it grew and grew and grew... And I was at that time working with um, the uh, with Goenkaji with with that system. This is a, you know a few years ago now, and I went off by myself to his beautiful centre up in Jaipur. And uh, he's built a castle there, or they've built a castle there. And as you go in, it's a rotunda, and as you go in, there's all these little rooms on the outside and the inside, and they're all nice little rooms. You know, when you get in there, you do feel sort of supported by the walls. <laughs> And this pain was, uh, was, was really bad. And I got into the habit of, uh, I got my, the idea in my head was that I was, um, I was just going to squeeze it out of the system because I could feel it was in the musculature. So I began sort of moving my head about like this and, and sort of stretching the muscles, you know. And eventually it got, it got fairly sort of wild like this, you see. And over a period of 10 days, I... Uh, I, you know, like it was, it was really uh, a, uh, what I would call uh, the, the lower depths of hell. <laughs> Apart from when I walked out and watched the, uh, the little um, uh, 
the little mice uh, running here and running there. Anyway, when I got back to uh, the UK, I was uh, whenever I sat, my head would would flop forward. I just couldn't. I'd, I'd begin like this, but it would end up like this. And uh, I, uh, it was only when somebody complained that there were two, there had been a group of monks at the Vihara I was staying at, maybe six or seven, and there were two Westerners amongst them. And uh, a friend came up and said to me that they were a little bit, um, well, ashamed is a bit too, too much, that the only monks who fell asleep were the two, <laughs> the two Westerners. Well, of course, I wasn't. See, I didn't say anything, you know. I just wasn't. I was like this, you see. So that, that propelled me to go and see the chiropractor. And so when he's uh, fiddling about with my head, he told me that my skull had come off the top of my spine. And I said, what? <laughs> and <laughs> he said he did. And then, uh, you know, as they know, they get hold of your head, you know. And there was this 10,000-world um, almighty crack. It was all right. It was back on top of my spine. <laughs> so, you see, you can take things too far. And I dare say that if I'd have carried on in that meditation center, I might have beheaded myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so uh, you have to be slightly careful. It's up to you, really, to gauge your own uh, personality because if you're the timid type, then you can push a bit. But if you're the foolhardy type, then, well, just watch your neck. <laughs> Ooh, time moves on. So, um, when, it comes to physic- when it comes to emotional pain, uh, remember that... Uh, Uh, be very clear in your mind that the cause of it, in terms of the external cause, some fright that was given to you as a child, or whatever it might be, is not the root cause of that emotional state. The root cause is the conditioning which goes back to the self. Therefore, the memory, any memory which comes up is irrelevant. And this emotion of fear now will be chasing something to get hold of. So if you if the fear is there on the surface of your mind and you, you happen to be walking along and a spider jumps on you, then you end up with this arachnophobia for the rest of your life. So it's always searching for something by way of expressing itself. Well, actually, it's an, an indulging of itself. So by sitting with fear, yeah, by sitting with, with that um, pain in the body, even though we don't know what it is, yeah, it's only when, remember these uh, mental states hit the heart center that we can begin to recognize them as emotions. Tightness in the belly. I mean, you can call it anxiety, but you don't know. It's just tightness in the belly. Hmm? And so long as, it's, so long as you get those feelings and, and the tightness in your body and the, and the burning and all those uh, peculiar things that come up, and just to stay with them, you see, and treat them as physical pain. You go into it, you, you, you get into the feelings of it, and just, just, just get the feeling of allowing it to blow its energy out. In the meantime, we're investigating these three characteristics. And in so doing, we are very slowly beginning to realize all the time that we are not that. We are not that. Uh, there's uh, one last little um, story which goes with this. From uh, the Mahasi Center. It's written in a book where um, 
all the healings that went on there over a period of so many years are sort of listed. And there was one particular man who turned up with terminal cancer in the stomach. And as he describes it, he, um, he didn't take any medicine. He, just, he was just going to work with it and sit there and, and, uh, and, and die. And, he sa- and as it goes, as I remember it, because I've not been able to get hold of this book since, um, he was sitting there just watching the pain in the stomach, and there was an explosion. That's how he describes it, an explosion. And the cancer disappeared. Now, <clears throat> not all cancers are caused by emotional states, but uh, in this case, lucky for him, it was. It disappeared. So that's a very graphic example of what's actually happening when we allow these uh, emotional states which have been, put, well, they're in the body, are allowed to express themselves. Very good. So this evening we've covered these, uh, just these three major ones, um, dullness and lethargy, restlessness and, and pain. And... Uh, the next one, I'll, I'll try and cover the rest. So I just wanted to spend just a bit of time on uh, these questions. If I can't uh, answer them all tonight, um, we can do so tomorrow. Uh, please discuss concrete practical means of balancing concentration, energy, and mindfulness. How to gauge what is needed without a sort of manipulation. That is, with desire. When it comes to the uh, spiritual faculties, which, of course, these are your three main ones, aren't aren't they? Energy, awareness, concentration. Concentration, energy, awareness. Um, See, the Buddha uh, makes it um, very simple for us. All he says is, if you pay attention to something, the other faculties will rise up to support it. So we don't have to worry about things like concentration and, and effort. As soon as you make the effort to be attentive, that's enough effort you need. As soon as you're attentive, that's enough concentration you need. You don't have to worry about these things. Okay. <laughs> See, if you make, if you make uh, a concentration a, uh, an obsessive thing, then... Uh, you're missing out on the awareness because your attention is always on, am I concentrated enough? If, you, if you're constantly worried about your energy and am I got enough energy for, for, for this, then, then again, your, your attention is moving off being attentive to being worried about whether you've got enough energy or not. But the fact of the matter is, as soon as you are paying attention, you have enough energy and concentration. And the more you keep placing the mind into that, into that attentive mode, then, of course, it just becomes sharper and sharper. See? So abandon concentration and energy. Just let the awareness do the trick. Remember that uh, awareness is always coupled with, in, with, in, with intelligence. Huh? There has to be an awareness with a question mark. You can't be just aware. Huh? It has to be that wanting to know. And that's what empowers the system. Yeah. Uh, what is the relationship of the Brahma Viharas to the Four Noble Truths? The factors of enlightenment and the five spiritual faculties. Good heavens, there's nothing more to be talked about after you've been through this lot. 
Well, just uh, what is the relationship of the Brahma Viharas to the Four Noble Truths? Well, uh, it, um, it comes into right attitude and it comes into right livelihood because your attitudes begin to express themselves in what you do. And uh, to practice the Brahma Viharas uh, as, should we say, um, as jhanic states uh, is all well and good in terms of developing our own mind, but unless, they, unless you can take those attitudes out into the world, you see. So remember that the Buddha, he's constantly saying, whatever a teacher can do out of compassion for his students, I have done for you. So his, uh, his development of the Brahm Viharas were presumably uh, enormous. But they had to be expressed. They had to be expressed into an action. And the word he uses is anukampa, which means to move towards the other. See, So compassion, love, and all these, they move you towards the other. So that's the relationship. Now, of course, you don't need them to become enlightened, is the point. These are the merits. These are your punya. Hmm? This is what you get when you, when, as we move along the path of liberation. Right? For liberation, we're talking about a level of consciousness. We're talking about a way of looking. Sir? So this way of looking is directed through these three characteristics of existence. When we've looked in the right way, one of the obvious insights we get is our interconnectedness. And when that interconnectedness is translated into a heart, into a heart expression, when, it's, when it moves into the heart as an expression, then it has to be love, compassion, sympathetic joy. Yeah? If it just stays up here, well... It's not much cop. I'm reminded of an incident where a cat. There were two incidents. Yeah, that's right. There were two. There, were, there was. A, I was at a monastery and there was a cat. I was and um, this cat was playing around with a mouse. With a mouse. I mean, it wasn't didn't want to eat it. It'd been fed. It was just playing around with it. And uh, there was. Um, it had been. That's right. When I walked in, there was a cat with a mouse, and the mouse was dead. And I said to the monk, I said, "What?" Well, I said, what happened here? He said, oh, he's just playing around with it. And I remember saying to him, well, didn't you stop it? He says, no, he said, he's karma. Right? Okay. I was at another monastery when this, this um, cat sort of shot out and got a bird. And this monk went up and gave it one hell of a wallop. Took the, cut the bird out of its mouth, looked at it, realized that, it, that its lungs had been punctured and died, held it up very beautifully with its wings, and chanted anichawata sankara. You know, all compounded things arise and pass away. So now you see what this first monk didn't realize or didn't understand was that his seeing the cat is part of the cat's karma. His, the fact that he didn't react to the cat's cruelty is part of the cat's karma. See, and that's, and that, that's what I mean about it's all right talking about the interconnectedness of the universe and all that, but... <laughs> But if it doesn't express itself through a compassionate action, then it's, uh, well, it's dead as a dodo. Uh, 
What does one do after leaving the anchor? I'm not so sure what that... Uh, I think that came up in, a, in an interview. Um, it's, not, it's not that you, you leave the anchor, like the breath is, is your anchor, right? It's your primary object. So the whole idea about the breath is that it's always there. Hmm? I mean, if it's not there, worry. <laughs> so when everything calms down, the mind becomes absolutely silent, the body is absolutely still, and the heart's completely in peace. Yeah, it's happened once or twice, hasn't it? Right? Then there is only the breath. So now the breath is where you center your whole attention. And it's through the breath that these characteristics are seen. And that's why it opens up in the Satipatthana discourse, the discourse on how to establish, because that's where you hone your skills, that's what you can always come back to, and eventually there is only the breath. Can you say something about the little thoughtlets which circumambulate, as it were, the primary object? Well, if they're only little thoughtlets, you see, just keep, just keep turning away. And as you're turning away, remember, you're drawing energy out of the system into the observing. Huh? You're actually, you know, drawing it out and putting it where it ought to be. So this is just a sort of mild restlessness, isn't it? And remember, those, there are those two stages, Vitaka Vichara. So the Vitaka is when you are constantly bringing that, that focus back, huh? constantly bringing the back. You know, the image of the bee flying towards the flower. And then the, uh, the Vichara is when finally the bee settles on the flower. So when you get that feeling of being settled on the breath. Hmm? So those are signs of, of, of that concentration coming, you see. Not that you're worrying about it. Yeah, you're just worried about being attentive. <laughs> and then there's that settling onto the, right? So now those are, that's a dangerous point because you tend to think, oh, I'm finally there, you know, brilliant. And you, you pull back a bit and off you go. The mind just bursts out because it's not really settled. So you've got to keep working on that until there's a, until there's a real sense of being uh, absorbed into it, a real steadiness, you know? How does one contemplate the three characteristics of existence without getting lost in concepts? So, uh, in the discourse on how to establish this mindfulness, yeah, so there are these three steps that the Buddha points out. He uses the word sikkati, which means to train. He says, train on the breath. And once you're settled, he says, see its quality of anicca, the quality of transience. Huh? And, then, and then he says there comes a point when there is just enough sati, just enough awareness, and just enough intelligence for insight to arise. Now, at that point, one isn't thinking anymore. You don't have to think, because the intelligence, this intuitive intelligence, has already been pointed that way. All we have to do by bringing up the idea in the mind of anicca, of transience, is you're directing your attention to a certain quality. Once it's directed to that quality and you begin to look at it, the thinking stops as you become absorbed in just looking. Yeah, remember the picture, for those of you who are here, that little, wonderful little baby with its, with its eyes completely wide open and its jaw dropped. <laughs> so if you can get that, that feeling of just looking, and that's, your, that's the point where uh, thinking and all that about 
the hindrances disappears because you're actually directly experiencing them. So those are the three stages. So you have to direct the mind, and there's that question mark, you see, that curiosity, the wanting to know, am I really seeing this the way it is? Have I really seen the quality of transience? Have I really seen the quality of of, uh, not-self? says, would it not be equally valid to follow the flow of breath sensations at the nose tip while doing walking meditation? You can do, actually. It's, a, it's more of a samatha practice, just to keep your mind on the breath. Make sure that you're walking in a, a very open space. You tend to walk into things when you do things like that. <laughs> just, you know, just be aware of where you generally are, but yeah. It says that walking meditation balances the faculties. Which faculties in particular does walking meditation balance? Well, as far as I remember, the normal thing is that what, what walking meditation is very good for is concentration. If you're worried about concentration, do the walking meditation. Because the walking meditation is gross. I mean, you can feel it. You're there with it. And you can, you can use it to just keep your mind actually on the footstep. Now, the balancing of the... Uh, uh, what's he say here? The balancing of the faculties. I mean, it presumably means the the uh, faculties of um, uh, the facts of enlightenment or the five spiritual faculties. Again, what balances those things is awareness, attention. That's what balances them. So, walking meditation is very good for that. If you um, you can actually, you know, do it in a way that you determine to stop whenever the mind wanders. So you stop. Right, collect yourself intending to walk, and off you go. You just keep, you know, you don't have to turn around or anything, but you stop every time the mind wanders. So I'll just do one last one. Oh, well, I've already answered that. Can you say more about sati combined with panya and where it's discussed in the suttas? Well, that's in the the main places, the discourse on how to establish awareness, satipatthana. Very good, I think that's enough for this evening. I hope that my words have been of some assistance. May you be fully liberated from all your suffering sooner rather than later. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father and my relatives, the sun and the moon, 
and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.